and we always use our product. And that's the biggest indicator for us that we're on the right track. Because if we're using it, probably others will. They do think that we're very competitive. And we created an internal competition. Define real targets and get them. Not almost get them or see that you're going to get them. Get them. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm joined by my colleague, Oren Younger. Hey, Oren. Hey, Glenn. And we're very excited to welcome Dan Adika to the show. Dan's the co-founder and CEO of WalkMe, a cloud-based engagement platform that simplifies the digital adoption process for employees and customers while increasing company productivity. Before co-founding WalkMe in 2011, Dan was a software engineer at HP, and prior to that served in the Israeli Defense Force for over five years as a programmer and team lead. WalkMe's been listed in the top 100 for customer success strategies in tech and has also been on the Forbes Cloud 100 list for five years running. So the company uh, is quite well known and has done very well. In fact, the company has over 2,000 customers from over 42 countries, including 31% of the Fortune 500, and recently had a very successful IPO with a valuation that is greater than $2 billion. We're going to talk today with Dan about how WalkMe started, how it became one of the fastest growing software companies in the world, and we're just really excited to have Dan join us on the show today. Dan, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Oren. Pleasure to be here. Great. So you spent five years in the IDF and then worked at HP as a programmer for just one year before you started, went on to co-found WalkMe. So you really came uh, came right out of the gates uh, with WalkMe. What sort of experience did you have in the IDF or at HP that kind of drove you and, and gave you the creative spark to, to found WalkMe? Yeah, that's a great question. I think most of the drive and the experience came from uh, the IDF. I was in the intelligence force and we worked nonstop, very exciting things. And then when I discharged, I joined uh, HP when they bought Mercury, right? And then they had uh, their their HQ here in Israel. And I, you know, joined and it was a bit boring for me with the pace that I used to. I wanted to change the world. So I started to look around. Back in the day, there wasn't the the crazy hype that we're seeing now on startups. Everybody's opening startups. Really easy to raise seed money today. So it was less less uh, uh, common, I would say. But I looked around, and then um, people knew I'm, I'm looking for something new and exciting. Um, and one of my friends uh, got me together with uh, one of my co-founders, um, and they pitched me the idea. And I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" And uh, we we started the company. That's amazing. Did this idea, like if you look back at the initial idea to where you are today, is it pretty similar or did has it evolved over time? It's evolved a lot. I think the fundamentals are the same, uh, which is um, guiding people on top of application real-time in-app. That's still the same. But I would say from... And it's all started with my co-founder mom, right? Uh, calling him, how do I do this? How do I do that? Over the phone, 
to really drive digital transformation within companies, business process optimizations, automation, and so on. So it went a long way. Um, and by the way, even within the years, we found ourselves not pivoting because it was always the same, but I would say approaching different markets and actually defining a whole new category. And even today, we're still uh, learning new stuff, I would say, every, every quarter. So mom-powered innovation. I like it. Mom-powered innovation, big time. And then d- double-clicking on that, because we have a lot of founders, entrepreneurs in the future that are listening in, and they want to they wanna lead a walk me one day. You know, how do you balance between this? I have an idea. It's a simple use case. Relatively, it's a problem. To This is a big vision. This is a big problem. There's a lot of money to be spent here, but we need to start somewhere. So... How do you do this while connecting the dots and, and when is the right time to move from a use case to a full-pledged platform that you that you mentioned that you built? Yeah, I would say that it's easy to dream. It's much harder to execute. Um, I always tell it to my team. We can dream, we can talk about the vision, and it's good to talk about the vision because that's what's leading us. At the end of the day, things need to work. So in WalkMe, we like to... Keep it simple and start small. Okay, so we didn't go and immediately execute on the full vision. Not just because we couldn't do it. I think the market wasn't there as well. So we had the vision, but then we're like, okay, in order to get there, what we would like to see in the next two quarters, right? We would like to see, let's say, 50 customers actually using it. Let's get there. That's what's important. It's not important now to invent the next generation. That's something that you can always carry the way with and, and you're going to lose a lot of focus and momentum. So we were actually pretty focused about how, what we're doing and, and what are the next phases for us. So I think one, in order not to carry away, define real targets and get them. Not almost get them or see that you're going to get them. Get them. Check the box and say, we did it. Now we're ready to go to the second phase and the third phase. So that was a very important, uh, uh, I would say, milestone for us to get those things in, in place. And I would say the second piece is, I'm personally using the product a lot. Uh, and we always use our product. And that's the biggest indicator for us that we're on the right track. Because if we're using it, Probably others will. I think we're now representing a, a, a very large group of people that if they're giving you a good feedback, that's something that we can rely on. That's really interesting. Um, we heard from Guy Pajarni a couple of episodes ago, the founder of Sneak, who talked about the importance of having big dreams, but taking small steps to get to those dreams. It sounds like you guys have followed a similar, similar path. For sure. And, and by the way, I would say that with WalkMe, some of the, the things we discovered along the way, we were very focused on websites at the beginning. It was like, hey, I'm going to help you do a transaction on your bank website, or we will help you do a transaction in your insurance website. And we learned along the way, and obviously the industry evolved, right? The SaaS industry and the cloud industry, it's all evolved. And we always took our technology and, and, and found where we're relevant, like how we can help. So I would say it's, it's, it's those things uh, together, right, uh, at the end of the day. And 
I, I agree with you, small steps and, and be very critical about are you actually hit the targets or you think you hit the target? Mm. Mm. So that's something that, you know, people are like giving them some slack sometimes. Yeah, I got it figured out. Really? If you really got it figured out, show me that conversion rate. Show me that funnel. Show me that number. And when you push people to get you the exact data, sometimes they're, okay, it's not 100% figured out. I have a little bit more work to do. Well, speaking of figure things, figuring things out, you guys, uh, as I mentioned, just had a really successful IPO. Um, and you'd raised $300 million pre-IPO in venture financing rounds. So had, had a lot of success raising money and, and kind of working with investors. But it sounds like it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows for you on the raising money front. And this is something that a lot of founders struggle with early on. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to fundraise in the early days uh, we actually first met back then, and I remember, you know, it was a it was a different environment, and WalkMe was a different company back then. So, curious what it was like, and how you ended up getting over the hurdle to get get your first couple of rounds raised, and then contrast that to what it was like in the maybe pre IPO and, and IPO timeframe. Sure. So, I would say when when you're creating a new category, it's 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 always a bit harder because investor doesn't have what to compare you to. And so obviously they're very risk uh, calculated uh, people and they want to have that uh, uh, certainty. So obviously when you're coming with a new product that, that no one knew um, and the market does not exist, obviously the beginning, it's much harder for us at the beginning. Um, we got no from a lot of VCs and the combination of us as first time founders plus unknown category, we always uh, needed to prove ourselves first. And we didn't get, I would say the credibility or like, oh, they will figure it out. Like we needed to show uh, that that it exists. So it was extremely hard at the beginning. We got the, the first million dollar round from Mangrove um, and that was hard. At the end of the day, uh, Roy and Mark took a leap of faith. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think they actually wanted to do it, but we had, uh, <laughs> we had a good connection and they believed in us and they said, okay, let's do it. It's only one million, but it was hard, right? Even, even I remember the, the first conversation we had with them. Are we going to do a B2B play? Are we going to do a B2B to C play? How it's going to work exactly? So, so we took time. And I would say then, then, then we got a little bit more money, five million from, from Giza and, and Gemini here in Israel. And I moved to the US and, and then we needed more money and it was really hard. Like we got to a point that we're about to run out of money at some point. Um, and luckily we met uh, Susan and Rory from Scale. And in that point of time, we really started to have the traction. And luckily for us, we had few customers that were in Scale's portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so that, that gave them the confidence. And I would say after that, when we raised that round, we really started to, to uh, fire our go-to-market engine. And this is where we saw a massive growth. So, so until that point, we were roughly around 1 million in ARR. And, and it took us a year but you couldn't look at our funnel and say, hey, that's repeatable. Like some were small companies, some were mid-sized, some were big companies. 
But since since 2014, we grew from one to five, um, and then from five to almost 18, and that was very repeatable. That was like okay, the, the funnel is working, everything is working. Let's just add add marketing and and and, and let's add headcount. And I would say since that point, raising money was super easy. It was just choosing. But again, you're growing three, four, five hundred percent, then then it's easy. But until that point, it was really hard. Uh, it was really hard. Actually, I would tell you that even now when we're, we're public and now we're talking with institutions and so on, I feel the same thing. We need to explain what is walking. Everybody wants comps. Everybody like, hey, what, what it is exactly, what it is exactly. And we need to go and explain. Uh, but we love it. We love to be the underdog and then prove everyone that we can uh, scale. So I would say to the listeners, right, if you believe, if you see the right behaviors, we always have a saying in the company, are we doing our best? Like, are we doing our best? And if we felt that we're doing our, our best and it's actually working, okay, so it's a matter of time until someone will be convinced. So we had a lot of relationship with people that we told them what we want to do. Maybe they didn't believe, maybe they believed in us, but then we came six or nine months after and like, hey, we, we achieved it and even we achieved more. And that created that confidence that allowed us to, to do follow-on investments. I love the unconscious strategy of going after um, a VC's portfolio. When we get one CEO sending us, hey, have you looked at this product? Well, it's, it's interesting. But once we get five of these, you know, we're like, we, we have to drop everything and, and, uh, and go after it. So yeah. that, that's, I'm sure, I'm sure that, that made the decision much easier for scale. Yeah. And, and, and good job for you. I want, I want to dive into perhaps a more personal front. You're an engineer by training. And as CEO, you're in charge of everything at the company, uh, specifically go to market. And this is, I guess, especially true in the early days. How does one make a jump from writing code to learning about marketing, sales, and everything in between? And perhaps what are the biggest challenges in making that shift? So I meet a lot of I met a lot of CEO, uh, CEOs that that you know are engineers in trade and then need to do that jump. I think in most of the time, it's or you have it or you don't. I personally had it. I was always a very confident person and, and, and outspoken. And even in the army, most of my time, I was uh, leading the team than just uh, going and coding it. So I fell in love with, with the go-to-market and sales. You can talk with my team. There was like always like, oh, we were afraid to come to a company where the CEO is engineer because engineers doesn't like sales. I loved sales. So we got along really well. And of course, I had tons to learn, right? So, so that's something that uh, I did. But I would say that if you like it, then it's come much, much easier. If you don't like it, my advice is don't even try, right? Bring someone to do it. Like when a business uh, entrepreneur bringing a, a great CTO, right? Or a great co-founder that taking the engineering part. I think that if you're an engineer CEO, you can bring your partner to lead the go-to-market. And the end of the day, Rafi and myself are completing each other in that sense. Rafi came with more marketing and business background. And I came with the engineering. And like, as, as we grew, we both grew. Now you could see Rafi's demoing the product and talk about our technology and I leave the GTM. So that's, that's something that you learn how to, to get into. But I would say to every CEO, I know how to do every role in the company. Every role. 
I can be an accountant, I can be our legal, I can be our support, I can be our developer, I can be, now it's bigger, but like when we were smaller, literally I could have done any, any role. And you don't need to do it, but you need to know of it. At the end of the day, it's your company and you need to understand it. And you can't say, oh, I don't care about legal. Like, no, legal is important. You have contracts with your with your customers. You need to know how to scale it and so on and so on. So you need to be, you need to, to know how to do every role in the company. That's something I truly believe in. It also keeps, uh, keeps people on their toes as well because you understand what everybody's doing. And so it's, it's, uh, it gives them that extra level of, uh, you know, pressure to, to deliver because they know you could, you could be doing the same thing. Yeah, I agree. So for the company, uh, your R and D's in, in Israel, most of your R and D's in Israel, where you guys were founded, um, you moved, um, pretty early on, as you mentioned to New York and just curious about that. Like what, what, um, what led you to move to New York? Was that a good thing for the company or did that create challenges? And how did you split your time? Let, let's, let's talk about the world pre-COVID. How did, how did you split your time between, you know, the U.S. and your various offices in the U.S. and, and Israel and other places? Yeah. Um, so obviously when I moved from Tel Aviv to San Francisco, um, yes, it was a, a bit of a small earthquake in the R&D, but we had uh, such a good CTO that started the company with me near uh, that were, were there to, to step up. But we were a small team. But I, I, I would never forget this day. We were at, at our office and, and Mark from, from Mangrove told me, hey, look, you're 26, 7. You're single. Pack a bag and go to San Francisco. Learn from the best. <laughs> and literally two weeks after, I packed a bag and I left. Not not in order to move, just to see what's up. Uh, best decision ever, by far. We learned so much. At the end of the day, if you look even today, there is not a lot of B2B Israeli companies that are not cybersecurity. There is, but not a lot. Um, and back in the day, there was none. Uh, so we needed to go and learn from the best. I remember I moved to San Francisco. I was by myself and I went to a meetup every day. I met people from Box and Dropbox and, and, and Zillow and Relic and so on. All of those brands were new to me. I didn't know what those companies, but started to learn, took an office, like right in front of Salesforce building. It was on the uh, market and second and started to meet and understand and, and learn so much about how we can grow our business. So I would say that was super important. At the beginning, I, I came back to Israel every quarter, at least once, sometimes twice. Uh, so it was hard. And back, back in the day, there was no direct flights. So that was a 20 to 24 hours journey every time, uh, which was hard. Then slowly as the company grew, I started to spend more and more and more time in, in the U.S. And then within the U.S., we opened offices. So I started to spend time between the offices in the U.S. And I would say around 17, 18, I was like almost 90, 95% in the U.S. I would come just to say hello and meet, meet more personally, meet the parents uh, um, and of course the team. But the team a lot of the time flew to me as well. So we would meet in New York, we would meet in San Francisco, we would meet in every show that we have. Um, 
But yeah, pre-COVID, wow, that's that's uh, a long time ago. But pre-COVID, I used to fly sometimes twice a week. Oh, wow. That was my life. Yeah. Like, hey, taking a plane, going to meet customers in Canada, taking a plane, visiting our San Francisco office, taking a plane, meeting our team in, in, in France, and so on and so on. So it was it was hard, uh, flight-wise. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's super important. Yeah, I, I, it is. Um, and and one, uh, one thing specifically, um, you know, when thinking about the, the, the U.S. and Israel from, from that perspective, is that you have revenue generation on one end and, and product creation on another end. That sometimes lead to, I guess, friction, if you will. How did you go about bridging those two camps, I'd say? Yeah, I would say that a CEO that is uh, business oriented but come with engineering background, that's the best combination. <laughs> and I'm telling it to you as investors as well. That's the best combination because our our revenue teams never need to deal with the R&D team. It was through me, at least at the, at the early times. And they were like always so happy, oh, the team in Israel, they're ninjas. We're telling them that we want something on Thursday, on Monday, it's ready. Took them time to understand that we're working on Sunday. But that was a very face-paced agile. And at the end of the day, we pushed really hard um, on the go-to-market, of course. And we were always talking with the engineers. Now, when I said to the, the sales team, no, they, they really respect it because they knew I want the revenue. So if I'm saying no, we have a really good reason to say no. We, we, we can't. Like, we, we literally can't. Um, and we're always being creative. Look, something that I learned in the Army is that everything is possible. Okay, just tell me what, what it will take. If we need to dig a hole 10 meters in the ground and, and get the cables down and it will work five milliseconds faster, okay, at least I know that now I need to decide if it's worth the investment or not. So we got this, this culture when we're not saying no, we're saying what it will take. And then it's allowed to people that are not necessarily technical to, to take really good decisions because they're like, okay, I get it. We can do it. Now I need to decide if to do that, that move worth the, the contract or worth the, the, the delays that we'll have in other versions. And then when we, we try to create that culture and we actually created it, even even the the business uh, uh, people that we had could make those decisions and understood exactly because we try to simplify it in a way of like, hey, this is how much it costs. Now make the decision. Hmm. How do you extend that? I mean, you know, the fact that you're the bridge makes a lot of sense, especially in the early days. But today you have offices in you know other places in the U.S. You mentioned Europe, Asia Pacific. How do they all fit into the equation of you know maintaining their culture across the different geos? Yeah, so by, by the way, I don't think that we have the same culture in every geo. I think they're very independent. Uh, we do have the same um, culture in a way, code of ethics, let's call it, that, that what we believe in, but each one uh, create their own culture. Um, now, now we're big, now we're like 1,000 people, so course we put the, the processes in place but i would say that that it's not scale it's 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 hard to scale it um, one of the things that we recognized early on is that we need more entrepreneurs in the company so the first acquisition we made 
were to get the, the entrepreneurs in. And one of the first acquisition we made, Abby, both the two, the two founders are now, uh, one already opened a new startup, but they, they were both SVPs in WalkMe, one leading the product, one leading the marketing. And then we had a DPUI acquisition and then another two amazing entrepreneurs. And now we had Zest acquisition and other amazing entrepreneurs. And those entrepreneurs were CEOs of companies, right? So they're, they're doing what we did just within WalkMe. And so that's one. On the other hand, you have people that grow to be like that, right? That's that's amazing. We have people that became that, um, but it's hard. It's not something that we can write a process. When you try to processize this, it breaks. It's because you need a common sense that you can teach uh, of how to prioritize those things. So unfortunately, I wish I could scale it. Maybe in retro perspective, I would get another 10, 20 entrepreneurs in the company, but um, it's something that it's very hard to scale. Hmm. They say that Mark Benioff at Salesforce is famous for, you know, trying to, when he, when he makes acquisitions, he lets the entrepreneurs kind of leave them alone and really tries to infuse entrepreneurial spirit and energy within his company by doing that. It sounds like you guys have benefited the same way. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things I wanted to touch on was that we mentioned in the intro, you serve about a third of the Fortune 500, which is pretty remarkable uh, as a young company. But obviously, you know, I'm sure it wasn't always like that. Your first uh, customers were probably smaller. How did you guys land, you know, your first one or two big deals and use that to kind of propel you into selling to the enterprise? Curious, because a lot of companies struggle with that. So we were very motivated, uh, fearless, and we wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, and we created this target list of uh, customers we want to get. Um, and we just brainstorm how to get it. Um, I, can't, I can't say the logos, but I would tell you that one time I was in a dinner uh, with my co-founder and someone told us, hey, this person that sits there is a VP in, in, in that company, a very well-known company. We were tiny. That company was public, probably worth 50, 60 billion. And we literally went to, to his table and we say, hey, sorry for being rude, but we really want to show you something. And he's like, okay. We opened the, the tablet. We showed him the demo and he's like, come to my office for a meeting. We came to the office. We started the sales cycle. And I would say the number one issue that we had and probably other that listening are related, it was security. Like how come we would now trust this tiny company from Israel where the CEO speaking with an accent, showing us this demo um, and we need to inject this code to our website. This is like, no. And one, we took security very seriously, very on early on. We understood what enterprise needed. So we went, talked with other enterprises that were not trying to sell. And I would say, I went to their CISOs and I'm like, what is the checklist that if we had it, you wouldn't have any excuse to tell us no. And then we were like pushing hard. Like when they told us no, why? Tell us why. We have this, we have this, we have this, let's try. And we made those tweaks and so on and so on. And it was really hard. But I would tell you that once you get the first five and you can use them as a reference, it's becoming really easy. Because when you get that reference, then the next 
the next CIO, the next CISO, and so on. You're like, hey, just call this person. Do you want me to set up a conversation with that person? So we knew that if we'll get those three, four, five names, it will open the, the, the gate. And I will tell you that, for example, in the financial industry, today we serve most of the banks in North America. Like, again, can't say the names, but most of them are our customers. So you can, you can understand the first bank was a nightmare to sell into. But then we got the second and the third and the fourth. And what the fifth and the sixth will say, everybody's using it. Everybody's doing it. So if they're doing it, we can do that. So we really went to this process of how they thinking when they're adding a new vendor. And we really check the box. We, we really put a lot of emphasis. Our CISO was amazing of getting us to where we need. And to be honest, for a young company, it's hard because let's explain to the uh, uh, R&D team that all we're doing now is focusing on our SOC 2 type 2 certification and they can deploy everything they want from, from GitHub and they can't use that plugin. And they're like, no, it's a startup. We need to be cool. We need to be able to work fast, but no, it's a business and the business needs to sell to other enterprises. So how we combine that? And, and that's something that we hit very early on, and it was a very good decision. That's, that's really great to hear. Uh, I, I can tell that I have some personal stories in that regards, and we keep having this, the same message to our companies. Um, nailing that security and enterprise readiness early on is so important. And the fact, you know, you just mentioned it. So I hope for all the listeners out there, they, they, they know to take it seriously uh, and devote the resources needed so it will not be a scaling issue. Uh, and by the way, and we took it and we, we didn't take no for an answer. I remember me going to our customer's office and talking with the people face to face. What's the issue? How we can help? What we need to do? Help us. And when you're coming to people and they're feeling that they're helping you, then they're putting their guards a bit. Because, okay, you're going to do what I'm telling you to do, so I'm fine with it. And, and we did it. That's, that's, that's how we got uh, into big enterprises super fast, by the way, governments as well, and so on and so on. And, again, and the tiny company from Israel. That's awesome. So we mentioned it earlier, but it is worth repeating. WalkMe uh, became a public company last June. So congrats again. Thank you. Uh, what is equally amazing is that six other Israeli companies went public in June. What do you think of this trend and what's driving it? One, it's uh, taking the real estate prices here in Tel Aviv uh, to the roof. <laughs> so they need to relax. Now, in, in all seriousness, um, tons of innovation uh, that comes from uh, uh, Tel Aviv and Israel. And I think that because we don't have a market in Israel, we must go to bigger markets, which U.S. is the first place to go. So unlike, and, and now we're seeing this in, in Europe a bit, they are coming to the U.S. first, but let's say I'm a startup in Germany, I will try to sell first in, in Germany, right? And then I would go to, to other places. So we have nothing here, right? We're a very tiny company and, and we can't really scale a company within Israel. So you must go and you must do it in the U.S. So you already set yourself to, to be successful. Uh, two, I do think that the Army service uh, puts a lot of drives in people. 
And I do think that back in the day, the government did a lot of initiatives to uh, basically encourage people to go and, and, and do that. And, and the end of the day, the VC community started to really believe in Israel. And you saw the big VCs opening offices here, which that fueled a lot. Um, so I would say there was the cybersecurity where, where Israel is, is really dominating, right? And, and, and every, every entrepreneur that comes from 8200 and so on. So they created a big ecosystem. Um, and overall, it's, it's just, I think, the culture of the country, right? I think uh, there was someone, someone compared Israel to Singapore. And they said that Israel was always in survival mode. So, so th- I think that's doing something to their entrepreneurs. Like, hey, we need to succeed even though it's hard. Uh, we don't have this comfort zone. And another thing, and, and again, this is just my, my, my uh, observation. It's not, uh, it's not uh, I don't want to generalize, but I do think that we're very competitive. And we created an internal competition where we're seeing companies and we're wanting to, hey, if they can do it, I can do it, right? So we're breaking glass ceilings all the time. And look, now to see Monday at almost 20 billion valuation, that's amazing, right? And we're all friends and like, hey, if they can create a $20 billion company, I can create a $20 billion company. So the next entrepreneur is saying, I can do it too. And I would say the third piece is that because it's a small community and people know each other, that makes it more real. It's not like this, like, like we have celebrities here, like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg, right? And then everybody, like, you never m- met him. Every CEO here, everybody knows him. Everybody knows uh, uh, they can go and meet for coffee and so on and so on. So when it's real, I think more and more people are trying to, to get their dream. Um, and that's proven to be successful. I'm, I'm really curious to see what will be in five and six years because we are the graduate of 2011, 12, 13. Now with the amount of money being invested in Israel since I would say 15, 16, 17, I want to see how many companies will, will go public in 2024, 2025 uh, and what sizes. That, that will be very curious and, and fascinating to see. Well, we hope that... Uh... We hope that the number of Israeli companies going public in 24 and 25 exceeds the current number. That'll be good for us because we've been investing uh, heavily in, in the country and see many of the things you're seeing. But um, really excited about uh, where you guys are headed and very much appreciate, Dan, you sharing with us your thoughts. So we're at, we're at the time of the episode now where um, we're just going to get into the speed round and ask you a couple of quick questions. We'll put you on the hot seat and just say the first thing that comes to mind. Do you have a favorite book that you recommend, you know, that, that was helpful to you that you recommend to other founders? Yeah, and probably most of them read it already, but it's The Hard Things About The Hard Things. Um, it was just fascinating to see the, the stuff they did. And I'm like, okay, I'm not alone. Other, other, other people are doing that too. They don't, they don't take no for an answer. And it's hard, right? It's okay. It's hard. It's very hard. People just seeing, you know, the articles and and the hype, but below the surface, it's really hard. What advice would you give to a young Dan? I would say prepare for success. I think we were always prepared for failure, but we should have balanced it with prepare for success. Uh, Because every shortcut you take, it's a debt that you need to repay in the future. And when you always work and look only for the 
next three quarters because you need to raise money, you're taking unnecessary shortcuts that if you would prepare for success, you would easily grow the company after. And I would say that's, that's the biggest lesson. And of course, with measure, because if you're just preparing for success, you might fail. So balance between success and failure. Okay, last one for you. Um, you guys have a lot of fun at WalkMe. Who was your favorite band from the tech battle of the bands? That was a long time ago. So WalkMe by far. Uh, but speaking of tech battle of the bands, we did tons of guerrilla marketing. Tons. That was one of them. Uh, we had a lot of other stuff that we, we launched in, in, in San Francisco. And, and that was thinking out of the box. We wanted the recognition. We wanted to be with, uh, you know, big companies and music connected everyone. It was so super cheap to produce. We just uh, closed the, uh, uh, the lounge in San Francisco and that's it. And we invited people and we got so much exposure. Uh, hopefully we'll get it back someday. But uh, it was, yeah, fun. Look, having fun, I would say that's number one. We had so much fun. We're still having fun, but doing it with passion and when you're enjoying to come to work, you have nothing to lose. Well, speaking of having fun, this has been a great episode. A lot of fun to listen to the stories of how you guys got going, the mom-powered innovation that got you going, and uh, the guerrilla tactics you've used along the way. Uh, Dan, you, you've built a really amazing company and it's been really exciting to hear about how you were able to do that from a standing start uh, not that long ago, early in your career as well, which is really remarkable. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Really appreciate you coming on. And uh, we know that people will really appreciate listening to this episode. Great. And thank you for having me. Thank you, Dan. Great. Thanks. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.